for mostly learning here from sunny london yes sunny well, we do get some from time to time so last week we explored the mysteries of catatonia with one of the leading experts in the field dr jonathan rogers but this week we turn to the future no 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 don't expect science fiction just science and when i talk about the future i mean children with us, one of the most eminent clinical academics in the world of child and adolescent psychiatry. I mean, you know, how else could you describe someone with over 200 peer-reviewed papers in high-impact journals, 25 million pounds funding for research, and over, wait for that, 16,000 times citations. That's massive. And, you know, after setting up the Child Mental Health Research Group in Exeter, she moved to Cambridge, where she's now a professor of child adolescent psychiatry. A firm believer that every interaction with a child presents an opportunity to intervene to improve their developmental trajectory, her work has direct relevance to policy, commissioning, and practice. And as you could imagine, you know, with our topic today, child and adolescent mental health and education. Braincast people, this is Professor Tamsin Ford. Prof, welcome to Braincast. Welcome, thank you very much for inviting me and I can only hope that I can live up to the um, amazing if slightly toe-curling introduction. Hello everyone. <laughs> Fantastic, so Prof, as always, let's start with the basics. So what is the purpose of education and where does mental health fit in there? Well, I think it's a really important question that we all ought to be engaging with at the moment. So if we step back from the actual definition on measures of well-being, which um, the PISA group, um, these are a big education group in um, Europe who gather lots of data about how children are doing and they had focused almost entirely on academic work, but they have switched and they're including um, questions about children's well-being. Our children come right down at the bottom of our of the list, and we're not doing that brilliantly on academic work either. Um, <clears throat> so I think the lockdowns and the schools being shut down is an opportunity for us to stop and think about what is our education for. And the word derives from Latin educare to draw out. So I think we want to be equipping children and young people to be the productive adults of tomorrow. And yet we have a system that's driven by um, what elite universities want. And that's great. You know, we need tomorrow's academics and we need tomorrow's amazing philosophical thinkers. But there is a large swage of the population who are not academic, but they have many other skills. And at the moment, they are not supported and they're essentially written off from earlier and earlier and earlier on in their school careers. Um, so I think we need to be talking about filling a vessel and uh, sorry, lighting a fire rather than filling a vessel full of facts. Mm -hmm. You know, we've gone back to an exam system which is very heavy high stakes, end of course exams, you learn stuff, 
you actually have to write it down in a certain way you know for mark schemes so if you're really bright you might get marked down because you have a different take on things but actually what employers want is people with good social skills who are able to um, cooperate they can problem solve you know it's those softer skills that we don't really measure and encourage um, that are really essential so there there is a group of people called rethinking assessment who um, started last year about you know GCSEs are cancelled for the second year running you know let's rethink this let's try and do it better but I think their aim is broader than just the GCSEs now where does mental health fit in um, we all know that you don't concentrate very well when your mental health is poor is poor so there is a huge interaction between somebody's mental health and their ability to function and for yep. children a major part of that function is school so school is a place that we make all children go to so it's almost a universal exposure and for many children school is an amazing place it's where they can develop their peer relationships where they learn lots about themselves and they they develop interests and attitude yeah, aptitudes for things but for a sizable number of children, school is actually a really aversive place. So there were quite a chunk of children in the follow-up of the national survey who said their life had got better during lockdown. And that, wow. I think, is a very sad indictment of where our current school policy is leaving quite a chunk of the population. Now, Prof, you know, while many would portray children as, you know, naive, happy creatures, unbothered by what's going on around them, we all know that's certainly not the case. In reading the government's publication, Mental Health of Children and Young People in England, one can't help but notice an increase over time in the prevalence of mental health disorders in five to 16 year olds, with one in six having at least one mental health diagnosis. And you know, while up to some extent, it's pretty easy to understand how poor mental health can affect a child's educational attainments, what about the other way around? How can schools be a source of poor mental health? Well, it's um, it's a very, very good question and one that I've spent the last sort of five to ten years thinking about. Um, so starting with the national data, um, we have a series of national surveys, one in 1999, one in 2004, both of which were then followed up three years later. And that gives you a really good population sample where we can study from one time point to another. And in one of the surveys, there was a question about teacher-pupil relationships. <clears throat> and that showed that um, if a parent reported that their child had a significantly difficult um, relationship with a teacher, it predicted new onset um, psychiatric disorder, a new onset mental health condition that was impairing, even if you took out all the children who had those conditions to begin with and adjusting for all kinds of background factors like age, ethnicity, sociodemographic, status, parental, you know, all kinds of other things that might be playing into this, which is really powerful. It also predicted exclusion from school, which is another topic that I've studied. So um, children with poor mental health 
are more likely, as our children with special educational needs or disability, to be excluded from school. However, if you look forward from the children who don't have a mental health condition but are excluded from school in 2004, you look forward to 2008, those children who were excluded were more likely to have a impairing mental health condition. And we demonstrated that in OUSFAC as well, particularly with um, teenage girls, that those who were excluded from school were, were in poor mental health to begin with, but it deteriorated afterwards because school is where children are, you know, the cultural norm is that you go to school. And if you are excluded from a school, um, that then takes you away from your peer group often. It may mean that you have no schooling at all, so you lose structure to your day. You are then at risk of getting involved in all kinds of other activities that aren't um, great for your health and well-being. So it's no surprise, but this was one of the first times that anyone demonstrated it with population level data. Likewise, attendance has a reciprocal relationship with school. So those in poor mental health, particularly anxiety and depression, are less likely to attend school, but also those who have poor attendance, even if you take those who were struggling at baseline, um, are um, more likely to show poor attendance later on. And you get the same kind of reciprocal dynamic process with, with attainment and learning. So um, as with adults who need occupational help if their mental health is poor, Children pay a very high developmental price and children's occupation is to go to school. So we need to be better supporting children's mental health or they can't access their education, however good the education provision is. And, and you know, despite all good intentions, you know, there are some things that are beyond one's control. In 2019, Jessica Dayton reported in the British Journal of Psychiatry that a significant contributing factor for the high prevalence of poor mental health in children is poverty. And echoing these results, you know, Samuel Nam published an article last year suggesting that children and young people from more deprived backgrounds are more likely to receive medication, you know, for ADHD. So how can education, you know, minimize the impact of factors that essentially are outside of its control, like, like, like poverty or, or parental mental health illness? That is a very good question. And I think we adjust for and forget the huge impact of income inequality and poverty on health, and it's not just mental health, um, but you know, for pretty much every illness there is, there's a, a, a socio-demographic um, gradient. It's a massive issue, and I think it's particularly an issue now, because what is happening is a widening of inequality, both in terms of health, but also education provision. It is one thing to be learning from home if you have a quiet bedroom and your own laptop or tablet, it is quite another if you are a family of six living in a two bedroom flat with perhaps one device um, between you and perhaps, you know, not enough data access to be able to download things, no printer to print things off. So what we are seeing is the youngsters in privileged families just had much more access. And although there is better take up of, of school places, particularly at primary school level for vulnerable children, this lockdown compared to the first one in last spring. 
it's still not all of them. And of course, with the impact of um, the pandemic on families, more and more families are going to be falling into that poverty bracket. So we really need, you know, one thing we should be able to do in this country is feed and clothe our children. And if you talk to quite a lot of heads of particularly primary schools where they know the pupils really well, there is a lot of providing people with meals, quietly slipping them secondhand school uniform, you know, mm. things that you wouldn't expect a teacher to have to do. We are a rich country. We should be able to feed and clothe our children adequately because as you will struggle to learn if you are in poor mental health, if you are hungry and not sleeping and aware that your parents are worried about paying the next bill, that is not going to help you learn either. Um, so I think there are more children who are medicated for ADHD of lower socioeconomic group because there are more children that are affected by it. Um, mm. They may or may not have an equivalent rate of getting to services. Um, it, it's a complicated area with, um, you know, it different is. findings from different studies. It is. And, and, you know, in the middle of all this, the teacher. And, and the truth is that, you know, some of them you know, may be spending more time with children than their parents. So how good are teachers at spotting and flagging up concerns about their students' mental health? That's a really good question. Now, um, as a child psychiatrist, when I'm in the clinic, I speak to as many people as I can about, um, about the child. Because as you've pointed out, children spend a lot of time in school. And actually, most of us are from fairly small families these days you know this the times my, I think my my great-grandmother had 13 children and my grandmother had eight and wow. I'm an only child um, you know so in the space of sort of three four generations we come down to very small families so in other words our reference range of children is quite small whereas teachers meet you know 30 if it's a primary school teacher or hundreds if you're a secondary school teacher every year so you have a much broader frame of reference however parents will know their own child very well and nobody other than a child know what knows what's going on inside the child's head so you need to speak to lots of different people when you're assessing a child and i'm sorry i've just got on a hobby horse of mine because there are some clinics and commissioners who say oh don't bother with ringing school you know we're too busy just deal with the child in front of you i don't think you can assess the child in front of you unless no. you've had a word or a report from the teacher so i think teachers know children very well they have that particularly in relation to behavior and social skills and ability to um sustain concentration you know they are very they have a very finely tuned um set of skills where it's more difficult for them is the child's internal state so anxiety or depression they may not reliably detect because you can be sitting very quietly in the back of a class ruminating about how hopeless your life is and that's not necessarily going to be picked up by the teacher unless it translates into irritability or dropping of work you know the things they'll pick up are not necessarily that the child is depressed now when i studied this systematically what we demonstrated comparing teachers recognition of whether a child was in poor mental health or not 
against uh, standardized diagnostic assessment in a population sample. So, you know, these weren't children coming to a clinic, um, or some of them might have been, but most of them weren't. They were a, a sample from the National Survey. If teachers were not concerned, there was almost none of that group who met diagnostic criteria. So wow. teachers are very, very good at saying this child is fine. And if the teacher says they're fine, mostly they are there are. It's not a hundred percent because nobody's a hundred percent. And actually children might have conditions that don't cause a problem in school and the teacher mm. wouldn't necessarily see them. And you know, sometimes teachers' judgments are not ever going to be a hundred percent perfect. However, they, their level of concern did not map on very well to what we in the clinic would call an impairing mental health condition. So in terms of turning that into statistics that some of the audience might be interested in, the negative predictive power or the um, specificity were over 95%. Wow. Whereas it, it varied for the type of problem, and it won't surprise you that for emotional problems it was the, the predictions were poorer than for say ADHD or conduct disorder um, mm. but in terms of positive predictive fa factors so the teacher saying I'm worried about this child it was about 50 50 however if you took a sort of general measure of of psychopathology of of how this child was doing the teachers were right these children were struggling compared to the children who didn't meet diagnostic criteria it's just they wouldn't have met a cams threshold and in a way that's appropriate you know teachers are not therapists they are saying this child's not doing very well it's just they're you know we have a, a sort of a, a broader scale than they do in terms of quite how badly they're doing and actually we know only a quarter of those who meet diagnostic criteria get to services there are a lot of children out there who are struggling so we really need to help our schools and our teachers and, and other staff in schools to support the children with the less severe problems so they don't become more severe because teachers are good at, at, at picking them out but you know they, they say that you know to care for others you first need to care for yourself so, is teachers' mental health and well-being associated with students' mental health and well-being? Well, I think it won't surprise anybody to find out that it is. Um, and we also know that teaching is a very stressful, very demanding profession. I think particularly um, at the moment, most of the teachers that I know socially have not had anything approaching a holiday since the pandemic began. They worked all the way through the summer trying to prepare schools to be as COVID secure as possible. Um, they worked all over Christmas feeling, you know, expecting they were going to have to open and then they've suddenly had to switch to doing everything back online. So it's been particularly hard. But even before that, um, the attrition of those who start training, a fair number don't even, you know, they qualify but they never teach and something like half have left the profession within the first five years. Now that is a waste of talent and there is a human cost to that. You know, that yeah. implies to me that we're asking too much of our teachers and we're not supporting them properly. And um, their colleagues from Penn State University talk about the burnout cycle. They have a very elegant paper. The, the, the lead author, author is Patricia Jennings um, and the senior author, Mark Greenberg where they have 
theorized and then demonstrated that you have a teacher who's burnt out and stressed, who then is likely to find the children more challenging and to be more irritable um, and you know less tolerant and less focused on positives, which leaves the children more unsettled, which means of course the stress on the teacher escalates and you get into this vicious circle. And one of one of the projects I did was taking that one step further, which was to train teachers and primary school teachers in a way of managing the classroom that helped them be aware of their own stress levels, but mostly was reorientating their focus from minor level disruptive disorder, you know, disruptive problems that you can just ignore because then they fade out um, and prompting them with, you know, very clear positive commands. So not stop talking, but I want you to listen. So you're very clear. And if you don't listen, this will happen. It's not just about being fuzzy and cuddly and, and really nice. It's about being really clear, asking for the positive, not the negative. So the child knows what they need to do, not what they shouldn't do. And then making sure you do respond when they do it. And actually over an academic year, um, we demonstrated a small but transit transient um, but small statistically significant improvement in children's mental health. More importantly, I think, amongst those in poor mental health at baseline, their mental health improved over the subsequent two, you know, three academic years. We went to 30 months after our initial baseline, which is massive in terms of those children being able to learn better. We also improved concentration and we dropped the level of sort of low um, level disruption in the classroom again over the three academic years that we're in the study. So what teachers do and how teachers are is really important because how teachers are with children will impact on the children and may well impact on their learning. But Prof, you know, the truth is that, you know, things don't always go, you know, the way that we like them to go. And sometimes, you know, things escalate and may lead to exclusion, essentially removing a child from the classroom as a form of uh, a disciplinary action, if you like. Now, the 2019 Timson report looked specifically into school exclusion. So 2,000 pupils excluded for a fixed period each day and 40 permanently excluded from a school each day in the UK. Now, according to the Department of Education, children with recognized special education needs or disability were over seven times more likely to be excluded from school than their peers. So are we failing the ones that actually need us more? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Um, <laughs> we absolutely are. I think, you know, Joke, being flippant aside, because it's not a joking matter, to me, if you have a child with special educational needs or a disability, and the school um, says is basically saying we cannot cope with this child's behaviour, that is a failure of the local edu education authority and the school to provide an education provision that's suitable for that child. There will obviously be exceptions to that, but you know, as a bottom line, I don't think we should be excluding these children more than other children. 
<clears throat> and you see there is a big overlap between special educational needs and mental health, particularly in relation to neurodevelopmental conditions like autism spectrum and ADHD. But, you know, it's not a perfect Venn diagram, if you like. Um, and you see the same thing. So in the national survey um, 2004, looking forward to 2007, children whose um, psychiatric disorder was recognised by either parents or teacher and usually both were more likely to be excluded. Something like four times as likely, even when you adjusted for age, gender, ethnicity, um, income, neighbourhood deprivation, you know, a whole load of other factors that might also play into this. And I think that was because their problems are more severe. But, you know, these children have a mental health condition. We should absolutely be supporting them. And exclusion has such a negative outcome for the children. It can itself um, point to, you know, predict poor mental health in the future. It yes. can also um, leave people without any educational structure to their life, without a peer group. They can drift into crime. You know, the, the outcomes are appalling. So we should be doing absolutely everything we possibly can to maintain youngsters in school. And actually, something um, that is not yet published, but I'm sure my colleagues at Place to Be won't mind me talking about it, is we've looked at um, their data. Now, Place to Be is a charity that provides mental health input to schools, and they have a kind of whole school process. So there is somewhere where teachers can go and discuss tricky kids and say, I'm, I'm, should I be worried about this child or, you know, help? How do I handle them? Children can be referred or refer themselves for counselling, one face-to-face counselling. There is also a kind of drop-in service for children called Place to Place to Talk. So even in the primary schools, they can put a little slip of paper saying, I have something that's really bothering me. And within a day or two, they can have a one-off session with the counsellor. And then, you know, there's stuff about assemblies and training for teachers. So it's a whole school package. Well, children who we, we've just compared children who were referred for the one to one counselling who'd either had at least one fixed term exclusion or they hadn't had an exclusion. And it won't surprise anybody that the children with one or more fixed term exclusions had many more adversities. So they're more likely to be looked after, to be on free school meals, to have English as an um, additional language. They also had a greater number of presenting issues. So, you know, separation in the family, suspected abuse, um, severe illness, you know, a whole collection of, of things. Now, counselling shouldn't actually improve behaviour. You know, the, the nice recommended um, intervention for behaviour problems is parent management training. And, you know, my work extended that saying, well, you know, no amount of training parents will sort a problem that's based in the school so let's train the teachers as well um, so it shouldn't have made a difference but actually these youngsters their mental health improved at the end of training now we don't have a control group but actually the number of exclusions had dramatically dropped and quite a chunk I think it was about half didn't have another exclusion whilst they were in, in counselling now, their mental health on both parent and teacher report improved, so they're good outcome measures around this. So it wasn't just that we changed teachers' perceptions, but I do wonder if sometimes highlighting, you know, a child can be a problem or they can be perceived as a child who has a problem that probably elicits a different response. 
But the bottom yeah. line is, particularly in primary school, we should not be excluding children from school. We should be supporting them to access it in whatever way um, they need help to, because the costs, quite frankly, of um, not doing so are horrendous. And then, of course, you know, you know, came the pandemic. And according to UNESCO, during the first lockdown, you know, back in April last year, over 90% of enrolled students and learners, which is roughly 1.5 billion young people worldwide, of course, you know, they went out of education. So here in the UK, the government survey mental health of children and young people in England showed that children and young people with a probable mental disorder were more likely to say that lockdown had made their life worse than those unlikely to have a mental disorder. And I have to say, you know, we felt that here at the Mosley too, with referrals to child adolescent mental health services rising by 42% between February and November last year. Which, of course, brings us to this experience-like question that governments have been struggling to answer during lockdown. To school or not to school? So what's your opinion? Well, I think um, children, as you started out by saying, children are our future and education is really important, not only for academic success, but actually in order to develop social skills, emotional regulation, children need to interact with other children and with other adults. So I think wherever possible, schools should be open. And, you know, we have Nightingale hospitals. Why don't we have Nightingale schools? You know, we've got plenty of buildings that can't be used at the moment. It doesn't, you know, most schools are not going to be able to suddenly double their capacity. But, you know, having children in regular education of some short sort, as far as is possible and safe should be our absolute priority. And I think it is to our eternal shame that we open pubs and restaurants and we all ate out to help out whilst our children weren't able to go to school. I think that's just appalling. Um, I think going forwards though, that does have to be balanced by the risk of the staff to the staff. So we know that very young children probably don't transmit the virus very much and they're much less likely to get very unwell. We don't yet know about long COVID. Um, you know, there are potential risks to children and of course there is this um, paediatric immune syndrome which is, you know, very, very rare but quite serious when it happens. The risks to children are smaller, particularly young children, perhaps less so with teenagers, but we shouldn't forget that there aren't only children in school. There are adults, some of whom will be vulnerable themselves or shielding others. So we need to make sure that we protect the teachers and try and space things out. But I think keeping schools open, you know, schools should be last to, to close and first to, to reopen. Prof, we're running out of time, but, but last question, final question for a million dollars. So it was only this January, in fact, that George Trubidis published results from the 1958 British birth cohort. Essentially, you know, this is a sample of something like, I don't know, like 17,000 individuals consisted of all infants born in Great Britain in a single week in 1958. And guess what they found? that early life mental health problems were associated with biomarkers in midlife, when I say biomarkers, I mean you know, blood biomarkers, as well as premature mortality, essentially telling us, watch your children's mental health or they may be dying earlier. 
So should mental health be taught at schools? You have 30 seconds. Short answer, yes. I don't think we um, need to you know, teach mental health, but we need to teach people how to look after themselves. And actually, a lot of the things that um, we teach people in relation to um, their physical health, so sleeping well, reasonable diet, exercise, you know, those will also help with mental health. But actually, teaching people to um, manage their emotions, to mm. look at the things that trigger and stress them, because we're all individuals and we'll all have different patterns. What you find really stressful, I might find a breeze to cope with. And likewise, there are things that will send me into a you know, screaming fit of panic that wouldn't bother you at all. So getting people to be self-aware, also conflict resolution, you know, positive social skills, all of which are great preparation for life, but actually protect your mental health. Fantastic. Brilliant people, Professor Tamsin Ford, thank you so much, Prof. Your work is clearly paving the way for a healthier future generation. But next Monday, get ready for a real treat. A truly unique and special gravitas as it coincides with the World Encephalitis Day. I will be joined not by one, but two of the world's leading experts in encephalitis. Dr. Tom Pollack from King's College London, who I'm pretty sure you know you remember as the first ever guest when we talked about the psychiatry of pandemics here at Brancast, and Professor Tom Solomon from the University of Liverpool, who you may have seen on BBC, you know, ITV, radio, you name it, you know. But apart from being the president of the Encephalitis Society, and also, you know, she happens to have two Guinness World Records. I told you, you're in for a treat. But until then, postdoc and brain test for mostly learning, over and out. out.